Well, this week we are launching into our next study, um, which is the book of Ruth. We've got about six weeks um, before uh, Lent starts. And so we're going to spend those six weeks digging through the book of Ruth, which is a short little book, four chapters. Um, And it's got some interesting context, so we're going to dig through that um, for a while. We should have time to to be pretty thorough with this one, so it's going to be kind of fun. Um, But... Six weeks from now, this is something I'm giving you plenty of warning, guys especially, listen up. Um, Ash Wednesday this year, so the beginning of Lent, um, last year we were just getting started, so we didn't actually do an Ash Wednesday service. I would like to do an Ash Wednesday service this year, but it falls on Valentine's Day. So if you're one of those people who like to celebrate Valentine's like who goes out on a Wednesday night anyway, right? So... <laughs> Plan the weekend before, maybe the weekend after, like build around it if you can, because it would be really cool if we did a Ash Wednesday service together. So if you can, um, make Valentine's Day plans, and you'll save so much on chocolate and flowers if you just wait like three days, like it'll be so much cheaper um, if you celebrate the next weekend. So you'll thank me for this, but on Valentine's Day, um, Or you can come here first and then just go out and be romantic with ashes on your forehead. So that would be cool too. Um, But uh, we're gonna we'll spend a little time talking about what Ash Wednesday is and how it's supposed to work. And and I will I will uh, give you some time to get ready for that. But it happens on February 14th. So make other plans, plan around that if you can. Okay, the Book of Ruth. This is uh, this is gonna be kind of fun tonight. We're gonna nerd out for a little bit. So those of you who like that. you know, put on your seatbelts. Those of you who don't, you can just lay over and take a nap if you want. That's cool. Um, but uh, this is, uh, we're going to do kind of the background and the history of this one a little bit to kind of set the stage of what's going on here. This is a book that was most likely, they think, written um, in the era of David, maybe Solomon. Um, some even dated as late as uh, the rabbinical era after captivity. Um, this is one of those books where 
when it was written is a little less important than, uh, than the time it's telling about. We know that it happens after it because they put a little tag on the end that, and then this person beget this person beget this person. So we know that several generations had passed before they go back and tell the story or at least record the story. So we don't know exactly when it was written. Um, there's some debate about that, but we know exactly when it's set because it opens up in the very first line and says um, that in the days of the judges, this happens. And then, uh, so we know kind of exactly where it falls. And there's a little genealogy at the end that matches the genealogy in Matthew. So it's pretty easy to kind of tag exactly when these events happen. And if we were all Jews, um, in the Jewish rabbinical calendar, this story is always told during Shavuot. Um, which is the Feast of Passover, uh, or not Passover, um, Weeks or Pentecost. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, this is a harvest story. So the setting of this story is harvest time. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, and uh, Shavuot is when they celebrate, it's a harvest festival. It's when they celebrate the first fruits that are brought in in the harvest. Um, but it's also uh, the Jews in the Talmud, the rabbis in the Talmud considered Ruth to be a type of the pre-Torah Jew. So um, the, the Jew before the Torah was given, um, they see uh, Ruth as this kind of blank slate just waiting for a people. And they see themselves in her. And so when they tell this story, um, because Pentecost is also when they celebrate. Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. It's when they celebrate God coming down on the mountain and giving his Torah to the people of Israel. And so they... They see when they read the book of Ruth during the Pentecost festival, they see this as um, kind of representing the Jews when they first receive the word because Ruth kind of comes into the people of God as, as a blank slate and she actually commits herself before she really even knows the whole story. She just says, you know, your God will be my God and your people my people. She just commits herself to Naomi. Um, and so the Jews kind of see themselves in that story, which is... Um, which brings up one of the ways we're going to look at this book, which is as a type or typology, um, which is kind of interesting. And, and a type, Jews use types too. They actually use a lot of types. But from a Christian perspective, a type is holding uh, that things in the Christian belief are prefigured or symbolized uh, by things in the Old Testament. And so things, in other words, things we believe have a, have like a, a pre-image or like a pre-symbol in the Old Testament. And we're going to do some typological studies, um, which I don't always do. I'm not a big fan of typology, but Ruth is, is a book where it kind of fits. But there are some interesting types in the Old Testament. Some of the most classic ones are obviously the ark. You've got this, uh, this symbol in the Old Testament where those that are inside the ark are saved from judgment and those that are outside aren't. And so we see a kind of a type of Christ. Those that are in Christ are freed from judgment, and those that are not aren't. So we see this kind of type of, of Jesus in the ark. Uh, some people see a type of Jesus in Isaac when, when uh, his father um, goes to offer him up, and it says that Isaac put the wood on his shoulder to carry it up the hill. So Isaac, like, bearing the wood of his own um, sacrifice. Uh, and, and so we see this type of a father sacrificing a son, and a lot of people see a type of Christ in that. Obviously, the Passover lamb. During during Passover, they have this lamb that is sacrificed, and some of its blood is put on the mantle and the doorposts, and uh, and that is uh, and if if you have the blood of the lamb, then the destroyer passes over 
your house. And a lot of people see a type of Christ in the Passover lamb. It's a pretty obvious one. Um, and then there's even, these can get kind of tricky. Jesus brought one up that I don't think anybody would have caught. Uh, they come to Jesus one time. They were saying, show us a sign. And, and he says, an evil and perverse generation seeks after a sign. No sign shall be given them except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man shall spend three, nights and, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And nobody would have ever read Jonah and say, oh, look, I'll bet that's talking about the Messiah, wouldn't he come? Like, so some of these are pretty well hidden, and we only see them in retrospect when we look back at them. But there's some really neat types in the book of Ruth that we're going to spend some time on, but not tonight. Tonight we're going to do more of a historical hermeneutic um, with the book. Uh, And we're going to start with the setting. And the setting actually happens right there in that first line. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Uh, So this sets our book um, right in in the book of Judges. And this is kind of a unique setting because Gentile Christians typically read Judges um, with kind of a negative connotation. There's this kind of pattern that builds up in Judges where the people follow God and everything goes well and then they start to serve other gods and they walk away from God and they start to kind of get beat up and the other nations kind of come and pick on them and they finally get so beat up they cry out to God and God sends a judge to come and free them and redeem them and then the judge judges them for a while and then they start to get sloppy again they walk away again and God's protection uh, is lifted and they get beat up again and they call it so that we, we see these patterns in the book and we always kind of look negatively at the book of Judges like that time when Israel just couldn't seem to get their stuff together and, and stick with God and, and they kept continually getting beat up. But the rabbis don't do it this way. The rabbis is kind of interesting. I spent a lot of time in the Talmud for the last two weeks kind of reading some Jewish commentary on Ruth and they actually in the Talmud call this the book of the straight or the, the straight book. And, it's, and that's supposed to be like a positive thing. What they mean by that is this is the era to them, what, it's what they call pure Torah Judaism. So this is the, the era where there was no king except for Torah. And the people just had Torah and that was it. Um, this, so this is before what we consider to be rabbinical Judaism or second temple Judaism. But even that is before the time of the monarchs. It's before Jewish monarchy when there wasn't even a king yet. So really, this is, they had just come into the promised land. They had just kind of established the kingdom. And uh, Moses did it just before they crossed over. And then Joshua does it once they come in. They kind of read the Torah again. They kind of have this big reading of Torah. And then Joshua says, choose this day who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And, and really the only thing they have to go off of to do this is the Torah. That's, that was their definition of how they were going to serve the Lord. And to a rabbinical student, um, if you look at how they would have read kind of the next phase of the story, which is the monarch phase, um, it would have gone something like this. Well, not something, it would have gone exactly like this. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old. Samuel was the very last judge. When it came to time when Samuel was old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his son did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel 
when, uh, when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord of the people and asked, asked for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his own chariots to be horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over thousands and captains over fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And some will make his weapons of war and equip for equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys. He'll put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and he will, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because your king whom you have chosen for yourself and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we will have a king over us that he, that we may be like the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So monarchy in the, in the Old Testament isn't described very well. It's like they don't get a very good picture going into this. And when rabbinical students go back and look at it, they read this passage and they're like, why would they have ever signed on to that deal? And so they look at the period. And then you only get to the very beginning of the fourth king. So really they only get through three kings. Saul, David, and Solomon. And the nation is irrevocably split. And so when Jews look back on this era, they don't have a very positive picture of monarchy. So their understanding of the period before the first king is kind of the golden years. Like when you read through the, through the Talmud, through their commentary on, on the Old Testament, this is their, they, they view this as the good old days. Um, so if they were to make Israel great again, it would be to go back to the time of the judges. Um, and the last line, of the book of Judges kind of wraps it up really. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And often as Gentile Christians, we kind of read this line negative also. We kind of put this on a, on a, everybody just did whatever they wanted, you know, kind of thing. But um, again, the Torah scholars don't do that. They see this as the way it was supposed to be. Each Jew following Torah out of his own heart rather than it being forced on him or legislated. Um, on him. Everybody just lived according to Torah and did what was right in his own eyes. And this is really powerful in light of the New Testament. So when you get to John and you've got John saying, um, in the beginning was the Word and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's a, if you're a Jewish reader, um, which is who John was writing to, um, there's, a, there's an interesting symmetry here because he's basically saying Jesus is the Word, the Torah, and the Torah became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's a there's kind of a drawing together of the of the, the era of the judges where Torah was king, 
and the area of the monarchs when the son of David is to be king. And so in Jesus, they kind of have this drawing together of the two eras, the pre-monarch era and the monarch era. So to a Jew, that would have been very powerful to say, um, in the beginning was the word, the Torah, uh, and the Torah uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. So in, the, uh, in this time, uh, if you don't, if you're a Jew who doesn't recognize Jesus and Messiah, these are the good old days, the book of Ruth. And, and the book of Ruth has a couple features in it uh, that are interesting to us because we get a real life kind of picture of what a Torah run society might have looked like. We don't really get that anywhere else. There's no other books that are just kind of a, a narrative picture of what it might have looked like. Uh, everything else, we get the commands and we get the pictures, but we don't really get like, what, what might this have looked like in a normal person's life? Like how, how did some of these funny commands, some of these Levitical commands uh, play out in real life? And so we're going to spend some time on these. We're going to look at three of them tonight. Um, so let's look at a couple. First is gleaning. This is going to show up in the book of Ruth. This is going to actually be a very important part of the book of Ruth. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your fields when you reap. Nor should you gather any gleaning from the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So this is a very important like social aspect, like social um, policy in the Torah. And the, the implications are pretty simple. You don't need 100% of what you have, is what they're saying. Um, leave some to help others, is, is really what this is saying. And in an agrarian culture, this meant that, you know, when you were going with your wagon and all your pickers, um, picking that, don't take time to kind of swing over and get all the, the edges and make sure you get every little, you know, every little blade of grain. Uh, and, and once you pass over the stuff that kind of falls off the wagon and the stuff that doesn't get onto the, the wagon, don't make a second pass and go over and pick all that up and make sure you've got a hundred percent of your stuff. Leave some. And for other people, and the, and it's kind of interesting because this is definitely giving. This is definitely sharing. Um, it's your stuff. You could theoretically take it. But at the same time, um, it wasn't a handout because somebody would have to have the inclination to get up and go out to the field and, and put forth a little effort to, to feed themselves. So it's a, it's an interesting combination of giving and sharing. Um, without it being a complete handout, that God, uh, God set it up where there would be plenty for the poor and for the widows and for the strangers that were coming through. But at the same time, it didn't create um, a system whereby uh, people were unwilling to work. And so this is uh, it's kind of an interesting social system. Um, and the beauty of this uh, is that everybody wound up with access to at least food. Um, and so the neat thing about, this is commanded, this funny little verse in Leviticus is just kind of jumps out, but if not for Ruth, we would have no indication as to whether or not anybody ever instituted it. But in Ruth, we find out that the farmers took this pretty seriously and that the poor actually did count on this. Um, we're going to see it play out in the book of Ruth that this was something that their society took seriously and did uh, in the in the pre-Marnarch era. We don't really see any evidence of it showing up after that, um, but we do know at least in the time of the judges, people took gleaning seriously and, and actually did it. The second one that we're going to look at is the goel. Uh, this is the Hebrew word um, for a kinsman redeemer. This is what they call the kinsman redeemer. Um, it says, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. 
And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem it, what, is, what his brother sold. Um, so this is interesting. If you fell in hard times and you were broke, you could sell your land and you would get money to basically live. And the problem with this was, was when in an agrarian society, when you sold your land, you basically sold your future and your kids' future opportunity to make money. Um, so this was seen as a very serious thing. And, it, and, and to kind of uh, prevent this from, prevent kind of all the wealth from getting collected by a small group of people, um, God protected the land. He protected your opportunity to provide for yourself. And so if you bought a piece of land um, from somebody who was down there, like, even if you loved the land, even if it connected perfectly to yours and it was what you always wanted, if, there, if a kinsman redeemer, if a goel came to you and said, hey, I want to buy that land, if they were offering fair market value, you couldn't tell them no. You had to let them buy it back into their family because God wanted the land to stay with the family so that they would have an opportunity to provide for themselves in the future. And so we get to see in this book um, this kind of play out. This is going to be a major theme, um, and, it, and it even becomes part of our typology as we get into that, this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Um, we're going to watch a character kind of redeem um, a piece of land, and with it, um, uh, Ruth and Naomi. And there's one more kind of Torah-instituted social system I want to talk about. It's not actually in the book of Ruth, but it's so closely attached to the Goel that I want to go ahead and bring it up. Um, and that's the concept of Jubilee. It says, and this is actually a continuation of the verse that we just finished. These are the next couple of verses. And let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, um, that it may be his possession. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hands of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee it shall be released and it shall be returned to his possession. This is one of the most interesting uh, features of, of, uh, of the Torah is that the, the Jubilee made sure that no matter what, every 50 years, family land went back to family. So when you, if you bought a piece of land, you were actually kind of renting it you knew you wouldn't be able to keep it forever. And if you were buying it and there was only three years till a jubilee, the price was drastically reduced because you knew you were only going to get three years worth of crops before this was returned to the family. And what this did was it allowed for people to succeed or fail. There's still 50 years. There's plenty of time for somebody to make bad decisions, be lazy, whatever. It didn't eliminate poverty, but it it kept it from where if, if, if somebody was... Uh, didn't work hard, if they made bad decisions, if they didn't take care of things, um, their kids and their kids' kids weren't automatically condemned um, to their decisions. They're, at some point, that land would be restored to the family and it would be, uh, uh, the family would have an opportunity in an agrarian society, really all you need is land to make it. Um, it would give them an opportunity to succeed again. Um, so it, it, it didn't get rid of the poor but it, it kept, it gave everybody opportunity on a regular basis. And this is going to be, um, this is kind of interesting in this particular book because we're going to watch a man named Boaz redeem a piece of land. And with it, he's going to redeem two women and he's going to marry one. And they're going to have a baby who's going to be the granddad of King David. Uh, and all of this is going to happen in this little podunk town called Bethlehem. 
And 29 generations later, a man, because of a Roman Caesar's census, is going to be called back to his piece of family land. Um, the family land that we're probably the same exact piece we're talking about right now. And 29 generations later, Joseph's going to come back to this family land in Bethlehem that was redeemed by Boaz. Um, and, and Mary is going to give birth um, to Jesus uh, on this piece of land that we're talking about in this book. So the land, you cannot do anything um, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, without paying attention to the land. The land is, is one of the most crucial things that happens in the Old Testament. They're very, very into the land. And so um, this story uh, is about people, but this redemption that happens is also about this land that they're attached to. Um, so this is a lineage book. Most likely that's why it was written. Um, this, this, uh, to us it's kind of cool because it's the lineage of Christ. We get to see the lineage of Jesus tied in here. But most likely it was written um, to kind of capture and tell a story about King David. Um, that's why they think it was probably, because it kind of ends with this, uh, Boaz has, uh, I forget his name, Obed, I think, and then, then Jesse and then David, and that's how the book ends. So most likely this was written in the era of David and they were just trying to capture some of the, the story of David's lineage. Um, but it brings up what I think is one of the, the best parts of this book. Uh, and that is that it, it is a story. This is a story. And one of the kind of ancient tensions of our faith is that our faith is both dogma and narrative. It's both doctrine and theology, and there are things to believe, and there are things to, to, to hang on to. But it's also a, a story. It's a narrative, and it always has been. Um, in the Jewish faith, they're, they're a, a Levitical society. Their nation is defined by commands, by a list of commands, it's kind of anchored by the Decalogue. Uh, but then there's 603 more that are tacked onto it. And this kind of defines who they are as a people. And yet every time they get together for something, uh, they retell their story. They, it, even though there's the, the kind of defining um, uh, dogmas of the faith, every time they get together for Passover, one of the things they do is they stand up and they say, my father was a wandering Aramean. And they tell Abraham's story of how Abraham wandered and then came to a land. And then they get together every year and they talk about the, the, the time in the wilderness, how God provided for them and he gave them manna and he gave them quail. And they, they retell this story constantly. The time of the judges when they took the, the promised land and God sent judges to deliver them from the enemy and, and the time of the kings. And, and every year on Shavuot, they tell a story of a family who had to leave Israel because they fell on hard times. And so they went to another land where they had heard there was some bread. And while they were there, the patriarch of the family, Elimelech, dies. And then the, the Naomi's two sons die, and it's just her and her two daughter-in-laws. And she releases them and, and tells them, I can't, even if I had another son, are you going to wait till he's of age? Like, I have nothing to give you. Go back to your people. And Orpah goes back to her family and Ruth won't do it. She says, don't ask me to leave you. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your God will be my God. Your people, my people. And so she travels back with her. And Naomi changes her name because 
Tamara because she's like, I'm, I'm bitter and broken. And when they get back, uh, Ruth goes out to glean to provide for her and her mother-in-law. And when she does, uh, she falls under the gaze of Boaz, who just happens to turn out to be a family redeemer. And, uh, and Naomi guides her into basically, if we're honest, how to seduce Boaz. And Ruth does, and she, and she gets his attention. And Boaz um, redeems back this piece of land, and with it, Naomi and Ruth. And, and we get to watch uh, this story. And every year at Shavuot, the Jews tell the story again. Because they're, they're, a, they're a narrative people. And we are a narrative people. We just got out of Advent where we, we constantly retell the story again because, we're the, because we live in a tension between dogma and narrative. So how do we respond to this? So in the midst of all the doctrines and theologies of our faith, um, we have to remember God's telling our stories. And he's telling your story and he's telling our story as a church. And he's... And he's <sighs> In Ruth, what's cool is it happens in the midst of this book that's about the people of Israel. And it's, it's telling a story of a nation in the book of Judges. And we hone in on a couple characters, but only, only in, in their impact to a nation. And it's awesome to remember that while these kind of grand narratives are happening, God's also active in this little family, this little, this little widow and her foreign daughter, daughter-in-law. And that... God is, is, there is no detail of the story that's too small for him. That while he's telling this big story, he's still interested in the little story. He's still interested in our story. When we get in the New Testament, we get Paul's theological framework. Like, we get this kind of philosophical approach to the gospel. And yet it all happens in the, the context of four different stories about Jesus' life in the book of Acts. Like The early church writers knew that both the theology and the narrative were important. And so even our New Testament has the same thing. We've got the stories and the dogmas. Martin Luther, when he was expounding on the Nicene Creed, um, especially the part about Jesus, it says this, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. On the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. In his large catechism, he's got all that theology and the part that he spent the most time writing about is that first line for us and for our salvation. He was enamored with that concept of, of that all of this happened for us, for our story. All of this happened that if it wasn't in the context of narrative, the dogmas don't mean anything. If not for us and for our salvation, if not for, for the story of humanity tangled up with the story of God, then all the dogmas have no real context that the, the story that we're telling, all the individual stories we're telling are important, that it was done for us and for our salvation. So as we go to the table tonight, my prayer is that
we would each one of us, as we take the bread and take the cup, would remember that this is for us and for our salvation. That Jesus didn't do this as a, as a theological activity. Like this wasn't, he didn't do this just for theology. He did this for us because he loved us. Because he was concerned about us. So on the night of his death, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Whenever you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup and he lifted it up and giving thanks and praise. He said, this is the new covenant, um, which is made in my blood, which shall be poured out for you and for all for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. So whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we, um, we thank you for the bread and the cup. And we choose to believe that you did that for us. We attach our faith um, to that. That for us and for our salvation, you endured what you endured. And so as we come to the table tonight, Jesus, we just ask you to, um, to allow our faith to be grounded in that, in the work you did, not in anything that we do, but in what you did. In Jesus' name, amen. The way we'll take communion is someone will offer you the plate and say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can take the bread and dip it in the cup and say, I will remember or amen. If you have gluten allergies, I ask that you use the square dishes. If not, please use the other. Would you come? Remember the body and blood of Christ.